Okay, let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14, and we'll read verse 22 to the end of the chapter. 22 to 36. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come unto you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, you are the Son of God. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made perfectly whole. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, Lord, as we come together this morning, and as we look at your word, as we read about your son, Jesus, and what he has done, and what he is to us, I pray that this morning, Lord, you would encourage us and edify us and build us up in the true faith, in our most holy faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would see you more clearly through this story, through this passage. Lord, that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and give us ears to hear what you have to say to us. May we respond to you this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now last week, we looked at one of the most amazing miracles of Jesus' ministry so far that we've read, but of Jesus' ministry altogether. The feeding of the 10,000, right? Commonly the feeding of the 5,000. There was probably 10,000 there. Jesus took five loaves and two fish, and he fed almost 10,000 people. That's one of the most amazing miracles that we see Jesus do in the Gospels. That's not a sorcerer's trick, brothers and sisters. That is the work of the divine Son of God. He's creating out of nothing. He's creating food that actually nourished these people and they left hungry, or they left uh, full, not hungry, because Christ fed them with food that didn't exist just before that event. We saw that amazing miracle and the people saw it too. We're just reading about it. They were there. Could you imagine being there? Could you imagine being there and sitting on the grass in 50s and all this bread starts coming? until there's, everyone's fed and there's 12 baskets full to pick up afterwards. Can you imagine being a disciple? 
knowing where that bread came from. And this week, this morning, I want to draw your attention to two words in the first verse that we read in this passage. The words are straight away or immediately and constrained. Now, in modern translations, it might not have the second one, constrained. In the King James, we read, and straight away, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. Or in the modern translations, it might say, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a ship. And the Greek word there for made is constrained. It's, it's an intense word. He forced them to get in the boat. <laughs> you want to know why? <laughs> now, Matthew doesn't tell us why Jesus forced them to get in the boat immediately, but we can pretty much guess why. And John explicitly tells us why. So turn with me to John quickly, just to chapter 6, and then we'll turn, turn right back to Matthew. John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. So immediately after this most amazing miracle, he forces his disciples to get into a boat. Here's why. John tells us. Verse 14 of John 6. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowds. When the crowds saw what Jesus had done, they said, this is surely that prophet. Perhaps that prophet that they're remembering the words of Moses. You remember Moses before he died. He said that a prophet God would raise up like me. Him you're to listen to. And at this point, the people are saying, this is surely that prophet. This is surely the one Moses was talking about. This is surely the Messiah. If the people are now acknowledging Jesus, this is surely the Messiah, why do you think Jesus would want to run away? Get into the boat, disciples, we're out of here. <laughs> Wait, Jesus, isn't this what you want? Isn't this the response that you want? Brothers and sisters, the people didn't just follow Jesus the next day looking for him because they wanted another meal. They followed him the next day looking for him because they recognized that he should be king. This is the one that should be king. And now Jesus is at the height of his popularity in his ministry. And brothers and sisters, it's about to take a dramatic turn. Jesus goes from being at the height of his popularity to being at a low point in his popularity. If you read on in John chapter 6, the people find him and say, where were you? We were looking for you. Now you're with us. And, and he says, don't labor for the bread that perishes, but for the bread that endures to eternal life. They start asking him, where are we going to get this bread? Jesus starts talking about himself, as we talked about last week. Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to give his flesh for the life of the world. And he says, you must eat me. You're the king, right? You're the Messiah. We believe. Wait, eat you? <laughs> Maybe this guy's not the Messiah. <laughs> Jesus begins to lose disciples when he starts to challenge the people's understanding of who he is. You see, it's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is from God. It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. It's one thing to acknowledge that Jesus is the King of Israel. But it's another thing to understand 
who Jesus is. What does it mean that he's the Messiah? What did Jesus come to do? What does Jesus have to say about himself? Do I believe the truth about Jesus Christ and who he is? Do I understand him, or do I just see him as a prophet that I can interpret whichever way I want, as the Messiah that I can interpret whichever way I want, as the king that I can interpret whichever way I want? Jesus is indeed the king of Israel. They weren't wrong. They were not wrong in saying that this man should be king. He should be. He is the king. But they did not understand the king. They wanted to make him king. It was the wrong time. It was the wrong motive. They didn't understand why Jesus had come into the world. They said, hey, great. Time for the Romans to be overthrown. Time for Israel to uh, step into its prophetic fulfillment. The Messiah has come. The nation must be right with God. We must be doing the right thing because God sent the Messiah. It's time. Of course, we'll see later, Jesus is weeping over the same people, saying, you killed the prophets. He said, they're going to do to the Son of Man whatever they want. How often I would gather you as a hen gathers its chicks, but you wouldn't. What do you mean you wouldn't? They here are saying, we want them. Jesus says, you don't really want me. You think you want me, but you don't. You don't know me. Brothers and sisters, the same phenomenon takes place today in our own day, there's many people in this world who acknowledge that Jesus is of God. They acknowledge that Jesus is a prophet. They acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah or the King of Israel. And yet today they don't understand who he is. And if they were to be challenged with who he is and confronted with who he is, then they would say, we don't want anything to do with that Jesus. See you later. If it's not our Jesus, then we don't want him. If it's the Jesus of giving, if it's the Jesus who gives his flesh for the life of the world, and all you need to do is believe upon him, and you'll never, you'll have eternal life, and you'll never perish. That's not the Jesus that I'm talking about. They don't want that Jesus. They want the Jesus who will support their program, their ideas. So I just want to challenge us this morning that to be, to believe in Jesus merely as the Messiah is not what makes you a Christian. There's many people that say, I'm a Christian because I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he's from God. I believe he's the king. He's coming again, right? That makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. And we should learn a lesson here from the gospel. That that doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus would immediately run away from you if, if you see him that way but reject the true meaning of who he is. He came into the world as the bread of God, as we saw last week, to give his life on the cross for our sins so that we might live by believing in him. That's the message of Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus this way? Do you understand who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross as a sinner? Do you believe that he alone is your salvation and that you're saved by what he did as a gift from God and not because of what you do. Do you believe that? That's what is the determining factor as to whether you're a Christian or not. Have you eaten the bread of life? Or do you just believe in Christ as the king or the prophet without an understanding? Have you eaten the bread that comes down from heaven? Now Jesus, 
Thus, his second greatest miracle, apart from the resurrection, in this passage that we read this morning. I'd say the first greatest miracle that he does in, of course, chronological sequence in that gospel is the feeding of the 5,000 or 10,000. And the second greatest miracle he does that very night. So that day, he feeds 10,000 people. That night, he does his second greatest miracle, which he read, which of course is the walking on the water. And we're all familiar with this story, right? How many of you are familiar with this story? This is a famous episode in the life and times of Jesus. Very familiar story. It goes something like this. So Jesus immediately constrains his disciples to get, get into the boat and to get away. Jesus gets the crowd, go, sends the crowd away, calms them down, and Jesus goes apart onto a mountain to pray. And it says here that the ship, being in the midst of the sea, was they were getting nowhere. These, these fishermen could not get the boat where they wanted it to go because there was a storm. The wind and the waves were contrary, and they're kind of just stuck in the sea. We, it's often we see that, isn't it, in the Gospels. The disciples are often in a storm on the sea, and Jesus often comes in and, and rescues them. It says that in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, Jesus went unto them. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m. How many of you have ever been awake at 3 to 6 a.m.? You know what it looks like. It's dark. Sometimes you think your eyes can deceive you at that time, right? Have you ever been up at 3 to 6 a.m. and you think you see something and it's not really real? It's kind of a, it's a dark, hazy sort of time of the night. And these guys are struggling. They're probably really tired. Maybe they think, this is a hallucination. But... Jesus comes walking upon the sea out to meet them. We saw already in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus controls the elements. We saw him command the wind and the waves earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, and they obeyed him. The disciple says, what manner of man is this? It's a good question. Even the wind and the waves obey him. We saw Jesus create the elements last week, earlier in the in this uh, chapter, he created the bread out of thin air. Creation ex nihilo. And now we see Jesus confound the elements because he walks upon water. He confounds nature because it's not natural to walk on water, right? You ever tried? He confounds nature, which would say that if a man steps upon the water out of a boat or off a dock or if you walk from the shore you sink you don't walk on the top and brothers and sisters I don't know what this looked like or what it would have felt like under Jesus' feet it was a miracle he wasn't hovering above the water he was stepping on the water as if it was hard surface and when the disciples see this it says they were troubled and they cried out for fear. They were more afraid of Jesus than the storm at that point. You see? So often, men would rather have the worst of nature than the tiniest bit of supernatural, right? They'd rather face the storm than have to deal with something that they can't wrap their minds around. It freaked them out, right? It says also later in, in the Bible, it says in Isaiah and in Revelation, that when God appears in the day of the Lord to man. Men would rather have mountains fall upon them and crush them than to have to face God and his wrath. 
Imagine that. You'd rather be crushed by stones. That would be a better alternative. So they're afraid. And they think it's a ghost or a frightening hallucination or some weird spiritual experience, but they do not think it's Jesus. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. The next part of the story is famous. Peter, in typical fashion, says, Lord, if it's you, let me come out upon the water to you. Can you imagine being in that boat and seeing this? And Peter steps out of the water. Matthew writes that Peter actually stood upon the water as he was going to Jesus. Peter walked on water until he saw the wind, it says. He saw the wind. Not the waves, it says. He saw the wind, which is interesting uh, because you don't see the wind, right? And no one can see the wind, but you can only see the effects of the wind. So what he was seeing was the effects of the wind. He looked at the waves splashing and rising and falling, and he saw the wind. He perceived the wind through seeing the waves. Seeing the effect, we perceive the cause. We often teach children this when it comes to uh, seeing God. As a little aside, um, we don't see God, but we do see him through effects, right? The things that God does around us in the scriptures and the miracles he does each day and through Christ, we can see God just like Peter saw the wind. But yet we see here that Peter, as bold as he is, and some might say as foolish as he is, he gets out into the boat, out of the boat, walks on water towards Jesus a few steps, sees the wind through the effects of the waves, and becomes afraid and starts to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately, verse 31, stretched forth his hand and catches him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? A.B. Bruce writes of Peter, A strange mixture of strength and weakness, bravery and cowardice, a man of generous impulses rather than constant firm of firm will. And uh, he points out that this is quite typical of Peter, that he seems to start strong and ends poorly, right? (laughs) Um, Maybe you can relate to him. (laughs) It's kind of human nature, in a sense. We have high aspirations, but once we get into the middle of it, we start to fail. You remember on the night Jesus was betrayed, Peter said, I'll never deny you. And of course, he denies him not once, but three times. Or Peter uh, was told by God, what I have cleansed, do not call common. And again, three times the Lord said that to him. We see later in the book of Galatians, Peter again flip-flopping on that very issue. Chrysostom, an uh, early Christian preacher, said of Peter, Peter walked on the water but feared the wind. He was walking on water. He was actually standing on the water like Jesus was, and yet he feared the wind. Such is human nature, often achieving great things and at fault in little things. When Peter gets brought back into the boat and Jesus gets in, we see in verse 32 that the wind ceases, and in verse 33, the disciples worship Jesus. And when it says they worship Jesus, that's no 
mere convention. They're not just being respectful in sort of a cultural way. These guys are sailors, shocked at what they just saw, and they fall down at Jesus' feet, and they bow before him, and they worship him. So this isn't just social convention. This isn't just what, how you would respect someone who's a superior to you. They're worshiping Jesus. R.T. France writes, As the disciples groped for adequate words to express their awareness that Jesus was more than an ordinary man, the phrase, Son of God, came to mind. So there they are in the boat worshiping him, and they're looking for words. This isn't something they thought up beforehand. In the moment, they say, you are truly the Son of God. So this incident had a profound effect upon the disciples. Now, it's not strange that Christians would find such profound moral lessons in this story, and I'd just like to go th- uh, just, just uh, highlight uh, uh, several of those uh, lessons that Christians throughout the ages have found in this story of Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking on the water. You often hear it preached uh, up from this story and it applied from this story that uh, trials happen in our lives, that the storm that the disciples are in represents a trial in your life, you know, whatever it may be. And the good news is that, you know, even as Christians, we face trials, but Christ is always present in our trials, and by faith we can overcome our trials by our faith in Christ. You've probably heard that sermon before, right? That's one way uh, Christians have found, one thing Christians have found in this story, one lesson they've learned. Uh, a, f- a fairly popular uh, pastor in Michigan named Rob Bell found this in this story. Rob Bell said that the the moral of this story is that Peter didn't believe in himself. That's what he said the moral of the story was, that Peter should have believed in himself that he could could walk on water. Brothers and sisters, I do not believe this is a good uh, application to take from this story. Matthew is certainly not trying to point out this in his gospel. He's not pointing to men, but away from them and to Christ. If anything, this shows us the failure of men and the greatness of Christ. Peter was not failing to believe in himself, as we'll see in just a moment. Another lesson Christians take from this story of the walking on the water is that as Christians, we should have, we take this as an incentive to action. We should act. We should uh, uh, step out and accomplish things for God that are beyond what we would imagine we can do. Charles Erdman wrote, Christ does not rebuke us for attempting too much but for trusting him too little. So we use this story as Christians to say, get out of the boat, Christians. Uh, Accomplish things, not because, of course, you can walk on water, but because God can do great things through you. Another way we interpret this, or we take, another application we take out of this story is that um, the Bible teaches us that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. And God can do absolutely anything. Look at Jesus walking on water. Look at Peter walking on water. Doesn't mean God always will do anything, but he can. And as Christians, we should trust him in any circumstance that God can do anything. So that's not to be confused with positive thinking, just have a good attitude and think everything's going to turn out well, because God might not make it turn out well. But you have faith that God can He can do anything if he so chooses. 
Now, some of these applications are more valid than others. And I think we really can take lessons like these out of this story. But brothers and sisters, I do not believe that that, that the things we've looked at already or we've discussed are Matthew's point in telling us this story. And the question we want to ask is, what is Matthew getting at here? What does Matthew want us to take away from the story? Why is it recorded? What are we to learn from this? What is the direct point we're to learn from this? And brothers and sisters, like the whole book of Matthew, Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel is to show us Jesus. And the issue here is the identity of Jesus. That is the main point of this story. The identity of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice the main elements in the story. Number one, Jesus comes out on the water and the disciples do not think it's Jesus. That's really important. This story is not about look at the great things you can accomplish directly with God. Jesus is coming out, walking on the water, and the disciples think they see a ghost or something. They do not think it's Jesus. Jesus responds to this unbelief by saying, It is I. It is me. And you'll notice the third important element, first being they don't think it's Jesus, second being Jesus says it's me, third being Peter saying, If it's you. So Peter still isn't convinced it's Jesus. He says, If it is you, then let me come out on the water. So Peter is now proving whether it's Jesus or not. And Peter steps out on the water, begins to sink, and I, I, when Jesus pulls out his hand and grabs him, I want to suggest that when he said, why did you doubt? What is he getting at there? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Is he saying, why did you doubt that you couldn't walk on the water? Why did you doubt that you couldn't doubt? Let me suggest, brothers and sisters, that what Jesus means when he says, why did you doubt, is, why did you doubt that it was me? Jesus was not a ghost. He might have said, look, uh, you guys have got any fish in the boat? A a spirit doesn't eat. Uh, That spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. I'm not a spirit, I'm a man walking on the water. Why Why did you doubt that I could have done this? The issue here is not about doubting that Peter could walk on water. The focus is not on the bare miraculous, but on Jesus. The question is, did the disciples see an it, or did they see an I? That's the main question. What's the difference between an it and an I? An it is an impersonal thing, and an I is a personal thing, right? If you were to ask me... uh, Where's Brad? I wouldn't say, it's right there. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I'd say, where's Tim's coffee cup? I'd say, it's over there. Right? It is impersonal. I is personal. I means a person. I means Jesus. Why did they doubt it was him? Why did they think it was an it rather than an I? Well, Fundamentally, they doubted that anyone could do that. They doubted that Jesus could do that. They doubted that Jesus could be out on the water in the midst of the sea. And if you compare this with 
Mark's account in 652, Mark actually says in connection with this story when they're in the boat and Jesus is on the, walking on the water and the disciples are amazed at what's going on. They're astonished. They're doubtful. Mark says that they did not consider the loaves and the fishes. Isn't that interesting? Mark actually says, and the disciples, the reason why they were so astonished at Jesus walking the water is because they didn't consider the first great miracle they did just a, a little bit earlier. Matthew Henry points out correctly, it is for a lack of a right understanding of Christ's former works that we are transported to the thought of his present works as if they never were the like before. Because we forget what God has done, we're amazed at what he does, or we doubt what he does, or we doubt that he can because we forget what he has done. Brothers and sisters, thinking biblically about life is about remembering the mighty acts of God that he's accomplished in the past. This is the true way of biblical thinking. This is how we're to think as Christians. We're not supposed to forget everything God has done in the past, actual historical things he's done and miracles he's accomplished, and forget about it and just live day by day and be surprised if he does something or doubt whether he can do something. We are to live our lives informed for the present by what God has done in the past. That was the whole point of the Old Testament, wasn't it? They didn't know the Lord, and so they forgot the Lord, and they didn't think God could do anything. They forgot that he brought them out of Egypt. They forgot the mighty works that he had done in Egypt. And so why should it be thought a strange thing if God can do that, do these things? Shouldn't we trust him for the present? Shouldn't we expect great things for the present? Shouldn't we not forget who God is and how he's revealed himself to us and not be doubtful, oh, you of little faith? Haven't you learned the mighty acts of God? Can you relate to that? Do you often forget what God has done in history? What about in your own personal history? I'm sure every one of us, or at least most of us, can say that God has done mighty things even in our own personal history. And yet we tend to even forget those things. So that it's hard for us to trust God to do present things for us. And yet, why should it be hard for us to trust him if he's done already? Maybe he's provided for you marvelously in the past. Maybe you've got this awesome story. Fifteen years ago, God provided this bam. It was so wonderful. But because you forget it in the present, oh, I don't know what we're going to do about this situation. How are we going to make it? Oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little object of faith. Why are you doubting that God can do great things? It's because you've forgotten what God has already done. There's one other place in the Gospels where Jesus says, It is I. In Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus has now risen from the dead and appears to the disciples in a room that's sealed. And once again, the disciples say, It's a spirit. (laughs) (laughs) He can't do this. (laughs) It is a spirit. Jesus says, It is I. He says, Give me some bread. This is where he says, spirits don't have bones and spirits don't eat fish. (laughs) It is I. The other time that he says that is in the same connection, in the same situation. The disciples are doubting because they're forgetting. Was Jesus an it or an I? They were asking. Was that an it or an I? Can God do that? And I want to ask this question to you this morning. 
Do you see God's hand or do you see Christ as an I or do you see as an it? Do you see what God does in your life or in history in the past as its or as a revelation of the I am? Isn't that so often our experience that God does amazing things? And yet our experience is, is to take them as its and not as I's. You ever been guilty of doing that? Or have you, have you ever struggled with that? You see, in a sense, brothers and sisters, Jesus is walking on water all the time, all around us. Now, not literally. I'm speaking figuratively. What I mean is, God is doing supernatural things all the time, all around us. Just like walking on water, walking on land is, an, is a human impossibility. But Jesus is doing things all the time around us. In scriptures, in the scriptures we read of God's mighty acts and his mighty deeds. In everyday miracles that God does for us. Maybe he, as we said, provides for you when you were in an extreme situation and he provided for you. Or most of all, and this is an all, all the time, all around thing, even though it was a historical act, but we can remember it every day. In his death and his, in his resurrection, he did a supernatural thing. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. So, like walking on water, there's stuff that God's doing all the time, all around us, that we can think about. Do we believe that these things are actually revelations of the I am? Or are they just it's that happen in life that have nothing to do with God? Isn't that the problem with people who aren't Christians who look at the cross, like, say, atheists? They might say, oh, there was a guy named Jesus and he died on the cross, but he certainly didn't rise from the dead. His whole death on the cross thing wasn't for our sins. It was just an it. It wasn't a revelation of God. It was just an it. Or they look at prophecy in Scripture. They look at prophecy in the Old Testament. And they see it there, and they don't see I there. They say, well, it's pretty interesting, certainly, but it's certainly not supernatural. It was probably written after it happened. It's just an it. It's not an I. Or an everyday miracle takes place. God provides for you, and uh, you share the story, and someone might think, or you might be tempted to think, I was just an it. It wasn't supernatural. It wasn't a revelation of God's presence. It was just an impersonal, natural it. Maybe my eyes were deceiving me. I think that these three words, brothers and sisters, can change our lives. It is I. In a sense, Jesus is saying, what you think is just an it is actually I. It is I. When something, when God tells us in the scriptures that he loves you and that he died for your sins and he rose from the dead, it is I. It's a revelation of my presence it's a revelation of the I am. The very words it is I in the Greek, ego, imi, is actually how the only way you could translate I am in Exodus chapter 3. And it's translated that way when the Hebrews translated Exodus chapter 3 when God said, I am, I am that I am. They actually translated that into Greek, ego, imi, what Jesus said, I am. So the question is, do you see the presence of the I am in life in the scriptures, in your own personal lives, and most importantly, in Jesus Christ and in his death and his resurrection. Do you take these things as the presence of God? Or do you look at them and say, my eyes are deceiving me. It's just in it. I'm just confused. It's not God. 
It's something else, but it's not God. It is I. These words have the power to change our lives. And we will not be afraid when we see that God is present with us. And the good news of the gospel is that he is present with us in his son, Jesus Christ. With us, Jesus said, until the end of the age. When we live our lives understanding the presence of the I Am, we will have peace and confidence and be afraid of nothing. When we can see God's hands in the things that the world doesn't see God in. Verse 36. Verse 34 to 36 in this last section. We have here, of course, Jesus healing Anyone who comes to him, anyone who touches his garment is made completely whole. The power of Christ is shown here. And in this, in this healing ministry, there's also here an analogy of Christ's power to deliver anyone who believes in him. Today, Christ is present. Even this morning, Christ is present. If we remember what he has done for us, we can put our trust in him this very day. And even today, brothers and sisters, anyone who touches Jesus, of course, figuratively speaking, anyone who believes in him and touches him by faith is made completely whole. And that's the point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that we all are in need of being whole. We all are in need of being healed. And God's not talking about physical healing merely. God is talking about spiritual healing. The book of Isaiah goes into great detail saying that when God looks at us outside of Christ, when God looks at us as sinners, he sees us full of sores and diseases, spiritual sores and diseases. Until you've come to Christ and touched him, until you've eaten the bread of life, you're spiritually diseased. And you need Christ to heal you. And he's here. As he says in his word, if you can believe that he's here, that he's not just an it, that Jesus is not just some historical figure, but he's actually of a truth, the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. God, the I Am, has revealed himself in Christ, and he's died for our sins, showing us his care for us, his power to save us. You see, this is what the true understanding of Jesus is. As we talked about earlier, it's not merely believing that Jesus is the Messiah or that he's the King. But it's believing that he has come into this world to save us from our sins. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is whether we believe. Whether we believe that he is and that he's come and that his death is all that we need. It's that simple. God has revealed himself in Christ And he's revealed himself as the God who loves sinners and has provided for us everything that we need. Simply believe. Simply believe and be whole. Simply trust in Christ, the person, and what he did for you through love. Simply set your hope in him as the object of your faith and receive peace in your soul. You no longer need to fear that God's wrath will be against you. You no longer need to be afraid that you won't be accepted or that you're not good enough. The truth is is that you aren't good enough and that Jesus has died for you to make you acceptable, as we've said and as we've sung already. So in closing, 
do you believe? Do you believe in a doctrine? Do you believe in an it? Or do you believe in the I am who loves you and died on the cross for you? Do you believe that he's all you need to make you whole? Important questions. I pray that we will always hear God's voice of comfort speaking through Christ Jesus into our stormy world. It is I. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would show us where our faith is small, where the object of our faith is small, and how we forget and have forgotten the mighty things that you have done, how you have revealed yourself, Lord, to us in history. And I pray that we would see that it is you. That the things that we read in the scripture are not just stories that were made up that aren't true, but that it is you. And Lord, when you do things in our lives, and when you provide for us so marvelously, and when you just show us your love day by day, and your providence day by day, that we would see that it is you, and not just think that it isn't you. And especially, Lord, in the gospel of your Son, I pray that we would see that it is you. That your death on the cross was not just some historical accident. Some man was crucified by Romans and didn't rise from the dead. But Lord, that we would see it is you. That you have revealed yourself in history and you have shown us your love and that you've provided everything that we need. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who believes that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's the King, but they don't understand what that means or they... They want him to be the king or they want him to be the Messiah, but they have the wrong motive and the wrong understanding. Lord, that you'd show them what it means to believe on you, that it's about believing in you as the bread of life, believing in you as the Savior, believing in you as the one and the only one who actually makes us right with you, right with God. Lord, I thank you for your grace that we sang about that makes us whiter than snow, and that's all we need. And I pray that we would trust in you today, tomorrow, and always. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.